I thought it was interesting that women played both sides of the ball. Yeah. Woman is the wisdom, and yet those women will get you young guys in a lot of trouble. And so uh, you are multifaceted. <laughs> yeah, so, so women personify both, both wisdom and folly. Yeah. yeah. So you found Proverbs to be very insightful in how you can self-evaluate and essentially uh, grow closer to God through that self-evaluation. Because it's, it, it addresses the things that we humans do. Addresses several of the things people do, yeah. And puts them in that light. So, so I just want to ask you, do you feel like um, Proverbs is really addressed to spirituality or do you think it's addressed more to morality? You, you thought it was both, okay. Because, I mean, if you're immoral, you're not going to be spiritual. So, you, to be spiritual, you need to be moral. Okay. Thanks. Anybody else reading Proverbs? Things stick out for you. When they, they create wisdom with understanding. It's like when Solomon asked for wisdom, he also got discernment. There's always this not just to know everything, but to have an understanding of those Thanks. It kind of distills everything down to a very basic way of looking at things, you know? Kind of like when I was old, my mother would say, what's the right thing to do every time I had a decision to make, whether I wanted to do the right thing or not. But that's kind of, you know, yeah, I think it would be a great idea to keep the book of Proverbs open in your kitchen. <laughs> okay. Okay. And, uh, refer to it every day in some way. Mm -hmm. Yes, ma'am. I, I looked at it and when I was reading it, and um, some of them I reread because I was like, mm -hmm. as a pause um, in life that often I personally do not do. Mm -hmm. when I feel like I need to take a moment and step back before reacting. And I also, I mean, then the way I react to what I feel like, God, what the... And so I felt very reflective of that. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Thanks. Can you a good example of what she said is it says, rebuke the wise and they will love you. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. It makes the hair come up on my back sometimes. Yeah. I need to read that one more often. So I had to look up the difference. I had to look up the definitions of truth and wisdom. Okay. Because when I read this in here, it says truth is knowledge and experience. When you look up wisdom, at least as far as the current dictionary is concerned, 
wisdom is knowledge and experience. And it says wisdom is the way things really are. That I had a hard time with. Thank you. I, I, I want us to get. I want us to get to that. If it's okay, let me ask you. Let's. Why would you know that? No. I, uh, no. <laughs> yeah. Well. Let me rebuke you. <laughs> so that you'll love me. Um, no. Um, what I want to do is actually have us try to get toward an understanding of wisdom. But first, I wanted to see if there are proverbs that are important to you, whether in the book or not. I mean, let's just think about what this book really is. It's a collection of idioms. (laughs) And having lived in Germany, right, there are some, in fact, most idioms don't translate at all. If I went to Germany and told a German person, do not cry over spilled milk, they would say, why would I do that? <laughs> but of course, we, we know that, I mean, that means something, right? And they have, there are proverbs in, in, in German, like gambling debts or debts of honor, which is just nonsense in English. It's complete nonsense. I, I, I didn't want us to accrue, hey, what are the proverbs your mom and dad told you? I want to ask you if there are proverbs that sort of stick in your mind whether they're biblical or inherited. I mean, if you were to write your own book of Proverbs, what are the ones you would put down? Does that make sense, what I'm asking? There are two that my father left me with that I remember vividly. One is, you will have to do a lot of things in life that you don't want to do. And that's so true. You'll have to do a lot of things in life you don't want to do. In general, it's good for you. In fact, always, but you still don't want to do them. Thanks. Um, and you left me with this one, and this is... He said, mankind will always go right up to the brink before pulling back. And he was talking about nuclear yeah. uh, conflagration at that time. That was many, many, many years ago. <laughs> The one that I came away with was always tell the truth because you can't keep up with your lies. Always tell the truth because you can't keep up with your lies. Okay. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. (laughs) And that is meaningful for you still. Yes. Yeah. Even though sometimes I did put all my eggs in the basket. Speaking about the truth, the one that that I remember the most is speak the truth in, in your past and tell a lie in the future. Okay. Speak the truth and it's in your past, tell a lie and it's into your future. For me, my, my dad especially, it's not so much a proverb as it was growing up minority woman in South Texas during a very racist period. His big thing to all six of us, uh, my brothers, but for me, for for him, I was gonna have a much harder time. You will fall down, people will say no to you, you don't give up, You, you know, he didn't say you get yourself up, dust yourself off and start all over again, but that's really what he was saying. Because you will, you are strong, you are brave, 
you will be fine. Yeah. But it's not going to be easy. Okay. Maybe that's too long and complicated. No, I think, I mean, I think you, you all, are, you distilled it, essentially, you, you will fall down, get up. <laughs> yeah, you right? not down. Choose not to stay down, yes. is kind of what yes. I hear yes. you yes. saying. Yes. Yeah. Okay, yes, that's correct. Thank you. My father's was, uh, anything worth doing is worth doing well. Mammals are perfections. <laughs> <laughs> One I tried to hear too was a, 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 a opens his mouth and poops it. <laughs> but notice who was the first one to speak in the class. <laughs> yeah. Treat others how you'd like to be treated. Treat others like you would like to be treated. My dad had two that come back to me. I mean, I, rem I remember them word for word, um, which are a little different. One is um, the minute you think you're different from everybody else is the minute you're just like everybody else, <laughs> which is very ironic coming from him because uh, he thought he was an exceptional person. Um, and the other was, this is going to sound weird when I say it, but... Um, my dad is a Vietnam veteran, and um, the other phrase is, a communist is a father trying to feed his children. Wow. Uh, those are a little different, prob I mean, those are the ones I remember. They're a little bit different, actually. They're a little different from some of the other ones, which is, yes, sir? The, um, there, there, there is this singing by Bishop that kind of goes along with that. It says, when I feed the people, when I feed the poor, people call me a saint. Why I ask why the poor, they call me communist. Mm. My mother did not give me memorable sentences. The proverb she lived by is, <laughs> we shouldn't quite embody this, uh, early to bed, early to, early to rise, and makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. The truth is, it was late to bed, early to rise. <laughs> makes a woman an effective teacher and mother. Uh, <laughs> she never said that, but my, my, my mother was very much a workaholic. Uh, and that was a proverb to live by. I, I, you know, what's interesting going around the room, I, I, don't, and I don't want to end this necessarily, but most of the quotes came from our fathers. Did you notice that? Most of us said, my dad said. <coughs> I wonder about that. I wonder about that. Did you know, Proverbs? Yes, I, I was thinking about that because when you said about your mother, in my case, again, maybe it's again just for the culture I came from, a woman's place was in the home, and my mother was very much a woman that thought I needed to be, to go out to get married, to have children, and actually leaving, leaving that little home, that little town would have been awful. And it was awful because I did. And I wound up being divorced, and yeah. for my dad, 
whenever he, she would say, yo no sé por qué hacer eso, I don't know why she wants to do that. And he said, because she wants to, so let her. And she will do it. So it was very, it was very much of a male-female kind of, uh, you know, the differences between, my brothers were never told that by her, but she did say that to me, and I was the oldest. Um, it, it's just, and I hadn't thought about that in a long time, but it was very, very different. But I think a lot of it is cultural, and I would be curious about if there were other places where women and fathers had different, or whether being a woman was different. I, I don't know. Were you the only girl? Pardon? Were you the only girl? I was the oldest girl, and my sister, then there were all boys after me, mm -hmm. and my sister came like almost 10 years later. There were six of us, but yeah, she was, and she was my mother's favorite, I thought. One of the things that strikes me is our father said so little to us. Mm. Uh, and the mothers had conversations with us. So if a father said something, you know, it, it kind of jumped out at us and we, we remembered it. That's interesting. Well, I do remember my mother speaking. And what I remember my mother saying vividly many, many times was, you wait till your father gets out. <laughs> <laughs> and as long as that sounds, that was scary. Yeah, yeah no. This is an interesting thing to think about, though, because consider that the book, this book is written from fathers to sons, you know, and I, I, I hadn't really thought of that until now, but again, like the quotes in my head come from my dad, but if you asked me, my dad's not a bad person by any means, I mean, he's a regular person, but if you asked me who gave me wisdom for living, I would tell you it was my mom, hands down. Not by what necessarily what she said that's memorable. I mean, my dad had two really great quotes, I just want you to know. Um, but to be honest with you, my, my, my mom poured her life out for me. And my dad did that very differently. So my mom did all the cooking and cleaning and getting us to appointments. Oh, and she also worked as a school teacher. Um, I guess she worked for full-time pay, but she worked more than full-time, if that makes sense. So I sort of had that, that model, and the relationship with my mom um, was funny. I, I evaluated it differently at different times in my life, but again, um, she really embodied relationship to me that was secure and safe more than my dad, who had the quotable quotes. I'm not prescribing that on you all. I just I think it becomes an important thing. Remember, this book is written fathers to sons. And in general, when you look up quotes on the internet, they're from men. <laughs> and you know, when I look at quotes, I don't think, well, it's interesting. I don't, I don't think I think of them as being from men. I just think of them as being from somebody, a person. Yeah. Even yeah. though, um, I guess the truth is that usually they are from well, and I, and I, and I think I, I want to raise that not because I'm not trying to be some, some crazy weird person here, but just but do consider that if you asked Rosa Park for a quote, it was, I'm not getting up. 
And, but then Martin Luther King would say, right, um, I'd much rather my children be, be judged on the content of their character than the color of their skin. You know, you know to be honest, you had to have both things or it wouldn't have worked. <laughs> and, and honestly, if Rosa Parks hadn't just said no, which is, well, easily quotable. I mean, she had the, she had the proverb of embodiment and Martin Luther King had the proverb of speech. Do you, you, you know what I mean? And um, even today, if you, if you look at the quotes out there, the vast majority, even today, are men's quotes. And I, that's what I'm saying. Although I, I, I do think, in general, models for living, most of, well, I don't know, I shouldn't say most. It's just interesting to think about that. Well, and if, if there's necessarily a difference. When I think of who had my back, it was my mom. Mm -hmm. I mean, my mom was always there. I mean, she worked. But when I think of who was there when I was sick, who was there when I was whatever, yeah. it was my mom. I think this, the reason I wanted to raise this is not just because I think it's always important to consider what we do with women, but particularly biblically. And women, again, we started out, are personified as wisdom or folly. Men aren't personified that way in this book. Do you notice? So it's just interesting to think about that, that this is a father to son, but women represent wisdom, but they don't speak. Not in this book. And even as we went around the table, again, most of us said, my father said, I remember, blank. You know, I, I, I was raised Catholic, and so I, this, is, this class has been interesting to me because traditionally, and in my being raised, we, we didn't read the Bible. You know, mm -hmm. We weren't taught from the Bible mm -hmm. hardly at all. Went to Catholic school. The, the nuns would tell us stories, but we learned more about the theology of being Catholic, yeah. what mm -hmm. the Mass was, the sacrament, all of that. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been interesting to me to, at this, and, and off and on, you know, I've read stuff in the Bible, but this class has really had me look at it differently. And uh, it's... Uh, it's fascinating um, about that, the, and then and then being Hispanic, there was the battle between a woman is a woman, and you have these things to do, and and Catholic, Hispanic Catholic. So that was really you were had very separate roles. Uh, however, my dad insisted that for me it was not going to be like that. So it was a battle in my heart and soul and head for a long time um, I came to terms with it. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And this actually, if you didn't mind, today is the 501st anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the theses to the door. So today's Reformation Day. And um, it's interesting to think about this. I don't, I'm, I'm not just chasing a rabbit here. I want to say this is an interesting thing about Proverbs. Um, is how we kind of denominationally do all of this. Mm -hmm. If you're Roman Catholic, you have two sources for authority, tradition and scripture. That's it. And tradition's more important. And, and that actually wasn't true until the Reformation. Um, the Reformation happened. Luther said, scripture's more important than tradition. And then came the Council of Trent, Right, which is sort of the Catholic anti-Reformation. Maybe you know this. And the Pope said, that's not true. The Pope is more important, and I'll prove it, the Apocrypha Scripture. 
So if you want to know how it is the Apocrypha is in the Catholic Bible as Scripture and not in the Protestant Bible, it came from this decision in the Council of Trent. Not until then was tradition more important than Scripture, but that's what happened at the Council of Trent. So as a result, right, the number one source of authority in the Roman Catholic Church is tradition, especially through the Pope. When he speaks ex cathedra, he's infallible, even if he contradicts the Bible. When the Pope sits down in his chair, Francis can say whatever he wants to, and he's a human being. When he sits down in the chair, he's the mouth of God. And he'll, he'll say, he'll make an encyclical, right? I mean, it, it has to be documented and it sort of becomes canonized. So an encyclical is the word of God. Well, I, I shouldn't I say it's, an, it's not, you, you see, you know, um, Martin Luther gets excommunicated through a papal bull. That's an encyclical. Uh, what I mean is when the Pope sort of says, I'm speaking for God, you'd better listen. Because it's more important than, I mean, if the Bible and the Pope contradict, the Pope wins. Not in everyday life. The Pope has to identify when he's speaking for God. Does that sort of make sense, what I'm saying? Francis could say like, oh man, I hate cheese. And, and that he's not speaking for God in that moment. He will identify when he's speaking for God. And that means he did. Does, does sort of that make sense? Now as a result of that tradition, Scripture ended up becoming less important than the catechism. The Catechism was based on Scripture, but ultimately uh, it was decided it's more important. So that's why you memorize the Catechism, because it's tradition. And, and I'm sure you've seen a Catechism. It's question and answer. The first question was, who made you God made you? Yeah, and yeah. It was, it just hey, we have one. We've got one in our prayer book. It's not binding, but it is a confession. <laughs> And there's one if you're Jewish. You do it every single Passover. Why is this night different from every other night? You have to do it for it to be a Passover meal. That's, that's Catholic. And think about Proverbs as tradition, just for a second. I know they're in Scripture, but I want you to think about this. Because it's Reformation Day, and this isn't true about Lutherans, but it's become true of evangelicals or Protestants, they say, nope, scripture only, no tradition. It's all about the Bible. So if there's a practice in the church that conflicts with scripture, we throw the practice out. Um, there's some problems with that because, as um, Johannes Tetzel pointed out to Luther when he was tried at the Diet of Worms, where do you think the Bible came from? It came from tradition. <laughs> People decided what got in. God didn't write the Bible. We know that, at least not directly. So there's always been that little bit. What's hard in the United States, see, I grew up Church of Christ with a piano. We were liberal. Um, <laughs> we were. That was the only thing we were liberal about, let me tell you. Um, and, then I, and then I moved into the Southern Baptist Church, and, and the thing is, we said Scripture only. But again, which ones? And in what language? Well, we only read English. But Scripture wasn't written in English. It wasn't, you know? Uh, so the, the, the truth is, we said Scripture, but we had a tradition of interpreting Scripture. And, and if I'm honest to you, the tradition of Scripture was more important than the Scripture. 
the Episcopal Church decided uh, sort of in the early 1600s, and we've been there ever since, that no, there's actually supposed to be this triangle between tradition, scripture, and reason. I would tell you, on any given issue, one is more important to us than the others. Sometimes we'll say, that's not reasonable, so that's the decision regardless of scripture and tradition. Or we'll say, uh, uh, may sound reasonable, but scripture says no. I mean, again, we sort of go round and around in that. If you're Methodist, which means really you're just a low Episcopalian, because John Wesley was an Anglican priest. He was also a romantic. See, so he believed there's tradition, there's scripture, there's reason, and experience. Now, us Episcopal folks believe experience goes into reason, but Methodist was a romantic. So, I mean, Wesley was a romantic, so he said, no, it's a separate category. I want to raise that up to you because I, I, I want to tell you, I think these are all really important when we think about what the Proverbs represent for us. In general, don't they represent traditions? Traditions. Things you've been passed down to. Things that your parents have told you. Waste not, want not. Idle hands of the devil's workshop. Now you don't find those verbatim in the Proverbs, but you pretty much find those in the Proverbs, don't you? Consider the ant. That's an Aesop's fable, the ant and the grasshopper. They don't mention the grasshopper being lazy, but they say, be like ants, work and it'll work out. So much so, right, that when I see people who are poor, I often think they're not working. You might not be like me, but I have a natural prejudice that if you can't pay your rent, it's because you're choosing either to squander your money or you're choosing not to get out there and look for work. I have to work through that, but I am, I am absolutely prejudiced to view extreme poverty as a choice. And that's in the book of Proverbs, I'll tell you right now, over and over and over again, that's a proverb. Now, things like that, traditions like that, they are sometimes true. <laughs> And this is the whole thing, you know, um, we call this heuristic reasoning. The dirty word for it is a rule of thumb. The reason that's a dirty word, you know, is because you can't beat your wife with a rod bigger than the diameter of your thumb. If you pick something smaller than that, it's fine. That's heuristic reasoning. Stereotypes. We see them over and over again that we simply say, in general, that's the case. There might be some exceptions, but that's the rule. I want to suggest to you that I think most of the book of Proverbs is that kind of reasoning. It's tradition. Maybe I actually should not have chased that rabbit. I think that we all, um, especially in a setting like this, that we're all um, working class or middle class, or I mean, we have similar backgrounds in terms of our backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And I've had, I've had stereotypes that. I've been principal in the most the inner the most inner of the inner cities, and I I had to battle with that all the time. 
Yeah. Because I, I would somewhere in the back of my head say, you know, you're not doing what you should be doing so that you wouldn't have be living in this situation yes. you're in. Yeah. And and I, I reasonably, but I knew their lives, so then I had to it was a constant or regular battle of, uh, I don't know, it was, it was tough, it was, Consider this, because I do this. If somebody is driving in a way that's very slow or erratic, I try to pass them and I try to look at them so that I can know how to make a rule against drivers like that. Ah, just like I thought, she's on her phone. She's drunk. She's drunk. It's a teenager. It's a woman. It's a 98-year-old driver. I look to make heuristic rules. In fact, your brain naturally does that. Your brain wants to categorize things, otherwise the world could just be random, and that's just too much for us to live with. Yes, sir? Well, you know, I was thinking about my, frankly, my, uh, my work background and a process called root cause analysis. Mm -hmm. to try to drive down to the root cause. Yeah. When I think about Proverbs, and, and the lessons, those lessons came from somewhere. There was a failure somewhere that resulted in a, 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 a lesson that was learned. Um, there's no such thing as a procedure in the world that I worked in that didn't result from some sort of an accident or something like that. So I keep coming back thinking that all of these problems, if you, if you look at them, if you, look, if you go back, there's a reason that working hard succeeds and being lazy doesn't. It's, yeah. I think that they saw people do that, and they said, okay, we're going to talk. We're going to, we're going to create a proverb, of course. They didn't quite think about it that way. But anyway, that was my thought. And, and I think this is a really important thing, having taught statistics. I really had no business doing it, because I'll tell you, I have a math degree, and statistics is not math. It's com complete phony baloney. I just want you to know. But uh, having taught statistics... It is the case that statistics can never tell you A caused B. Statistics can tell you how likely it is that A and B are related. So that's the difference between correlation and causation. And I want to suggest to you that that's what heuristic reasoning really does, is says correlation is very strong, and it becomes detrimental to us when we say cause. When we mistake correlation for causation, and we have these stereotypes, just to be honest, often stereotypes are correct in our experience. Otherwise, we wouldn't hold on to them. However, when we force them on situations where they don't fit, or when we forget that there's lurking variables for uh, stereotypes, then our heuristic reasoning starts to be oppressive. So. In general, it is the case, if you live in Atlanta, that the average black family makes less than the average white family. Stereotypically, that is the case. Knowing that isn't wrong, what we do with that information can take us places right or wrong. Does that make sense? We can say, well, they just don't have the same kind of jobs we have. They don't work hard, therefore, therefore, they don't work hard, they don't apply themselves, they have different spending habits that are wasteful, instead of, okay, do they have the same opportunities? 
Do they have the same family structures? Are they welcome in the same neighborhoods? I mean, those start to become questions that are important in, cor in correlation bits. Any good statistician actually asks about the lurking variables instead of jumping straight to causation. And in that sense, statistics is a social science, and it is somewhat mathematically modeled, not math, social science, um, but offers, I think, an insight into Proverbs. Because I'm going to tell you, there's cases, I think, strong cases, when I read these, where these things don't fit at all and become a, they become basically tools of oppression against people we perceive to be lazy, etc. Um, okay, I didn't want to do that as early as I did. I shouldn't have chased that down. Let's, let's go a different direction. What's wisdom? <laughs> I don't mean according to the dictionary. Wisdom comes from experience. It comes from, uh, that's one of the sources of it. In other words, you know, when we're young, we try out all kinds of things and we learn what works and what doesn't work. Okay. Okay, so we build a, some wisdom from that. Yeah. Uh, we uh, have an opportunity to talk with, uh, you know, how we relate with people. We learn how to do that and, you know, how we develop our sensitivity to them. So that is another kind of wisdom. Uh, and so wisdom really comes from lived experience. How is it different from knowledge? Well, knowledge is something that you know. Okay, so I, it sounds like what you're saying is knowledge is really about facts and postulates and proofs, and wisdom is about applying those regularly, which happens through experience and tradition. Yeah. You learn from them. Okay. Uh, it's about the choices. Say more about that. Well, you, you have all the facts and your, your experience. Well, I, I, I go back to Solomon whenever the, 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 the person brought the baby. Yes. He, he, you know, he had ways to give it to one person or to the other person. So he said, well, I'm going to cut the baby in half. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, that, that, that was a very wise thing for him to do because he, because he, felt, because he knew that he could find out who the real mom was. Now I'm going to ask you, was it wise or was it shrewd? <laughs> and is there a difference? No, I mean, I mean that. Because I, I think one thing that we're going to do, this, this, a lot of this course is about the tree of life, which is about wisdom. And I want to ask you, is wisdom different from shrewdness? Yes. And if you say yes, how are they different? Well, wisdom, uh, let's look shrewdness. Shrewdness is knowledge. Calculation and uh, you know, thinking about uh, how to make this work for you, or how you can get control people. You know, it's more of a uh, control. Okay. So then, what's how is wisdom not that? Well, wisdom uh, to me has a gentler side to it, in that you know you you, you learn you can learn 
from your shrewdness if if you were if you did. So if, in other words, if you go back and examine your shrewd things, you can look and see why it was that right or was it wrong, and you can gain a little wisdom from that if it was wrong or right. But wisdom is something that we just live. Uh, uh, it, um, it, I just think it's a healthier way of doing But you know, you can't say, to me, wisdom uh, comes and shrewdness, one comes from the heart and one from, comes from the intellect. So would you say, okay, would you say that shrewdness is the intellect yes. yeah. and you'd say wisdom comes from the heart? Yeah, and, and the, the intellect is what you, what you personally know or think is fact. And, and whereas the heart set, takes that fact and, and does what, what your experience has, has trained you or helped you to look at differently. I, I don't know what I'm saying. Well, I, if I can reflect back, are you saying a little bit, and it's like, this is different words, uh -huh. are you saying that wisdom actually considers all parties and shrewdness might be just self-consideration? Yes. yes. Yeah, I, like self-centered yeah. versus all-centered. Yeah. yeah, the shrewdness is way more about me, just me, not how is it going to help. Please notice a lot of these proverbs are all about you. <laughs> now, I do want to, I, they are, they're about how you can succeed. Um, I, I'd like to point out that we often get this wrong biblically. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge God and God will direct your paths. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's the center of our feelings. Biblically, it is not. Uh, the heart in Proverbs is the center of your will. Tell me where your will is centered. What do you, where do you think your will is centered? Is it in your heart? No. I think my will's in my brain. Yeah, that's what I so, trust in the Lord with all your will is what the Proverbs say. Trust in the Lord with all your brain, with all your shrewdness. <laughs> Can I give you two others, just really fast, just so we know? Um, your soul in the Bible is not in your heart. Your soul in the Bible is in your neck. You want to hear it? Your, your ability to breathe is your soul. You don't have one. You are a soul. So in Proverbs, you don't have a soul that's different from your body. In fact, your soul is everything you are put together. But the epicenter of that is here because when this goes away, you do not exist. Very, very Eastern. Mm -hmm. Very Hindu. Yeah, very but keep in mind, this is the, what we call the Orient. right? The Middle East mm -hmm. is, we don't use this word because it's, it's pejorative, but it's Oriental. It's Eastern. I mean, this is, comes from the East. And the Holy Spirit is about this, right? God breathes into the clay and it becomes alive. That's where your soul lives, right? There, and you're, not, in the, not in your spine, because that's your brain again. It's, it's here in your, in your trachea. That's your soul. Your feelings, just in case you're interested, they don't live in your heart. They live in your bowels. 
We, we feel with our heart. I love you with all my heart. Here, I love you with my lower intestine and my upper <laughs> intestine and part of my stomach. And of course, you get the reason for that. Like when you feel that real big love feeling, you get the butterflies in here. So that's the location of feelings. This is the location of the will. And this is the location of everything put together. We redo that. We put feelings here, and we put will here, and then we say soul lives here and is different from rest of us. But I just want you to know how different we locate than, than the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your will, not your feelings. That's actually much more, I can live that a lot better because I can't control my feelings, but I can control, if I work hard, what I choose to think about. Sorry, John. Um, I was thinking in Proverbs when we move from what uh, ten through fifteen, a a I'm going to say it differently. Maybe a good person does this, a bad person does that. Yeah. So one of my thought, thoughts about wisdom: wisdom does not define whether it's good or bad. A wise man can do bad. Okay. As well as good. Um. That's it. <laughs> okay. Would that be a shrewd man, though, or a wise man? Pardon me? Would that be a shrewd man that does that? I think a shrewd man can be both good and bad. Yeah. Yeah. I think wisdom contains empathy. You think wisdom contains empathy? Yeah. But it could contain the opposite. It could. Say, say, say how, John. I, I, I want to track that down. Well, I mean, if, 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 if you define wisdom as experience, yeah. If you have an experience uh, uh, that your experience can tell you to be empathetic or not, yeah, and that's a choice. Yeah. So then I, I wonder if some experiences result in this and this, and other experiences can um, take us here and there. So experience can offer us two paths. It can either make us more shrewd or it can make us wiser. And I don't know that wisdom and shrewdness are always different, uh, but I, I'm just calling the question, is wisdom always good, I think is something that you're asking, and I, and I think it's a great question. I, I, and my thought was this, come back to kind of, I think of wisdom as in a Venn diagram, it's a large circle, and inside that circle is experience, Yeah. Um, and, and um, you name it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it is good or bad. Okay. Wisdom can be neutral. Well, it could be good or bad. And it could be anywhere in between. So like in this, in this, when we talked about this, wisdom includes tradition, yeah. and it includes experience, yeah. and it includes reason, and sure enough, it has scripture. Mm -hmm. And then there's other bubbles in there, like correlation and um, shrewdness, right? Mm -hmm. In decision-making. You know, there's church words that are awful. The worst word you can ever hear in church is that you have to discern something. Because I'd much rather make a decision. <laughs> I don't know if you know churchy words. Discernment is really about, like, wisdom and the Spirit calling you. And it's like, I, 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 I cease to care after a while, and I just want to, like, do something. <laughs> So, so I think maybe wisdom is not always obedient to deadlines. 
it's obedient to like values, if that makes sense. I mean, I just want to hold that up as a maybe. Just because you have experience, do you get wisdom? No. no. So how do you get it? Guided experience. That you also have to accept, right? Yes. <laughs> you accept it by doing the experience. So you have to accept that that proverb or that you drill down and got some fact that you can go by and then you go and experience it and that will possibly develop wisdom. Well, let me ask you this way. Can you have wisdom without experience? If you have no experience, yeah. can you have wisdom? I think, it's a great, I think it's a great question. I would, I would even say, I'd put it a different way, can you have wisdom outside of a community? Sure. How? How do you have experience outside of a community? Would you say that Adam was wisdomless? Adam? Yeah, I think after, I would. After time in, in, the, in the garden? Yeah, I think so. I think I'd say that. Wisdom is experience. Well, except that, this is an interesting question, Mike, because depending how we read what happened in Genesis chapter 3, when it all goes bad, right? Eve is the one who eats the fruit. She offers it to Adam. He eats it. He could have done it because he was dumb or thoughtless or craving power, or he could have said, John Milton says the reason... Adam ate the apple is because he didn't want to lose Eve. <laughs> but, was, but, but did Eve eat of the apple as well? I don't remember. She ate it first. She ate it and first. then she gave it to him. Then she then gained wisdom. Was she the first with wisdom? She gained knowledge, says the scripture, which is both good and evil. But I, John Milton says Adam ate the apple to live in community with Eve because he loved her too much to be by himself. He, he knew the consequences and he was willing to accept them. Now, now that's made up. The scriptures don't say that. But that's Milton's read. There's a really fascinating book on it by Bruce Feiler called The First Love Story. It's quite interesting, actually, who says Adam and Eve really embody not just this broken relationship but absolute love for each other in that, uh, based on this Miltonian understanding, Adam chooses community over principles. Is that wise? I don't know. Sometimes maybe not. But I, but I do wonder, right, uh, you know, there's sages in the desert like St. Anthony. He sells everything he has and he lives in the desert. A hermit alone. Can you, can you get wisdom by being alone or can you just get mysticism? And are they different? That comes back to how do you define wisdom? What, what, yeah, that's gaps, what I'm asking. How do, we, how do we do it? Yeah, how do we do I mean, it? You know, if, 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 is wisdom, um, I've, 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 I've walked this path many times and, um, and I haven't fallen, um, but I know that if I stumble on a rock, I will fall. <laughs> is that wisdom? I don't know. That, I mean, I think, I think that's heuristic reasoning. Yeah. I, I see that truth is perception. Your truth may not be my truth. So truth is perception. Wisdom to me, I love this passage, it contains the character of God and the stuff of existence. Wisdom is bigger than I learned from something. I, you're wise because you went to school and you learned things. Wisdom to me is the ability to recognize 
God's presence in everything. And hmm. everyone. Whether they believe like you and have your truths or not. You're wise when you recognize differences and you accept them, you're wise. And that's all seeing God's presence in everyone and everything. Then that's wisdom. It has to do with God. All the rest of this knowledge and what we've learned and experience is your truth. Okay, well, so let me ask you this. Are, are, can, I, can, I, can I ask you if this is sort of what you're saying? There's a difference between truth as fact and truth, capital T, as wisdom. As in, this one represents, it may not be about facts and shrewdness, it's about God's it's presence. Your, pre your relationship with your God yeah. is truth. Your truth. Does it include other people? Yes, their relationship with their God is their truth. So okay. my truth may not be the same as the Hindu's truth, yeah. but they have their belief system. And I'm wise when I recognize that that doesn't put anything between me and my God. So does that come back to community? <laughs> yeah. The community is part of truth. The Greeks, uh, one of the Greeks, one of wisdom. Yes, Athena. Yeah came out of Zeus's head, not out of his heart. <laughs> and Athena was a Athena is a woman. And, and again, women are wisdom, personified. Yeah, regarding what lady said, that's the, miss, the missing point. We, we, in other words, we, she said, we've been talking about all this knowledge sort of stuff, where the real root of wisdom is our relationship with God. In other words, that's the whole purpose of Proverbs, mm. is to help us in our relationship with God. And God also teaches us, uh, you know, when we, when we read scriptures or, or a book or something of that sort, where we get point, uh, I, ne I never thought about it that way. Yeah. Uh, so I think that uh, all these things fit in, but, it's, but what is your relationship with God? We're going to come back to what wisdom is because I think that's part of what the curriculum is designed is to expand and converse with wisdom. I would tell you it's extremely difficult to define, especially in the Bible. Please, please. And that's that Kendrick brought up a very interesting thought for me. And that's that I've been talking about wisdom and experience more secularly than I have. Yeah, and I listen, I think, uh, yeah. You know, I've been, I, I, so when you, when, you, when you bring in, merge the spiritual with the uh, secular, um, it, that's where I really think about that. So, and I want to tell you this is something really interesting about uh, antiquated Judaism, and I'd say in, 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 in this still exists today in, in, in maybe lesser levels, there is no sacred and secular bifurcation. Everything is sacred. We live in a very bifurcated world where there's sacred and secular, but that's not biblical. <laughs> Everything we do is sacred, one way or another. No, I think that's true. I, 
I think we're getting back to that idea about truth, and I actually think that's one of the, the big things about All Saints Day, is that, well, we'll talk about that Sunday. <laughs> A little bit more about uh, ladies, if you don't mind me saying. Um, wisdom in Greek, Sophia, uh, goddess, in um, Hebrew, actually, wisdom sort of, it's, it's called chokmah, which has a, um, it has this feminine ending at the end, that, um, at the end, so, so feminine, and actually starts to become associated with the Shekinah. Uh, you know, when, when, when Moshe goes up on Mount Horeb, Mount uh, Sinai, and talks to God, he comes down and his face is glowing, or in Latin, he grew horns. Um, that's the Shekinah glory. That's like the, the residual effect of God's presence. When God comes into the temple, there's this huge cloud. That's the Shekinah. It's sort of God's radiant glory. It's feminine. And it starts to get associated with wisdom. And there's actually some ancient Hebrew graffiti that sort of says that the Shekinah, or that wisdom, is God's consort. That is, like, God has a, not a wife, because gods don't marry. God has a female presence in heaven, and that's wisdom. Um, so it's interesting that there's this equation, and then we read in Proverbs, again, about wisdom is represented always by a woman and extremely sexualized. Did you notice? Extremely sexualized. Wisdom is, 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 wisdom is chaste, and folly is unchaste. And that shows up a couple of different ways. I want to remind you that um, in ancient Near Eastern culture, men went to the temple to worship gods like Baal and Chemosh and Molech through many different ways, but one of them was by having sex with temple prostitutes. So when you hear this prostitution metaphor, it's sort of saying that following other gods is unfaithful, but it's also describing how you followed other gods. <laughs> you had sex with prostitutes in the temple. Um, it's very strange, though, if you read the book, that, that women, in, you can disagree with me, but when I read this, women are fundamentally temptresses and seductresses. So my son, stay away from women all they want is sex and ruin. So, if you're wondering why it is that burqas are imposed on women in Saudi Arabia, it comes from that reasoning. In Islam, there's a passage in the Hadith. This is the tradition. Um, this is not in the Quran. It's the tradition from Muhammad, peace be upon him, from his life that said there were nine parts of desire and women got eight of them. So it's a fundamental worldview that, and this is true in Hinduism too, actually, that women burn, burn with lust and lasciviousness. How interesting that in the Western tradition, we actually tend to think the other way. We tend to think the other way. Um, but, but here you're seeing this bit that women are just sex-crazed maniacs. Can I ask a question? Because there's a passage in in uh, 626, and it's it said um, that if a man lays with it, I'm paraphrasing, yeah. if a man lays with a prostitute, he, all he has to do is pay. You got it. But if he lays with a wife, uh, 
of another, uh, it will stalk him for his, the rest of his life. Yep. So it's like there's a difference between prostitutes and wife. Of course there is, but still, it almost, it almost said it was okay to spend time with a prostitute as long as you give her some bread. It was okay. <laughs> Except that prostitutes in general are at religious shrines. So even at Yes. See, we don't get this. For us, a butcher is a secular occupation. You go to the butcher, they chop up some meat. The butchers are the priests back then. Levites. The Levites. They're living into a holy order by processing your meat. You're not allowed to butcher your own meat. You are not allowed. <laughs> Again, we live in such a different reality to this that we, we just don't even realize how different it was back then. Uh, that was your priesthood, was being a butcher. Red light districts. Today we think that's just secular, women do what they want. They did it at temples. Prostitution was religious behavior, not just physical behavior. Here, too. Part of what you'll see, though, is it's not just that, um, hey, um, you should stay away from women. It's you should stay away from other guys' wives. The real prohibition is not against sexuality. It's against using property that's not yours. Because the truth is, a wife belongs to another man. And if you mess with his property, that will come back to get you. So notice in the examples, it's the, the woman whose husband is away that tries to lure you in. Avoid that. It's not about women luring you in in general. See, and, and this is a bizarre thing. Um, according to Leviticus, if you have sex with a virgin, you just pay for her and you're married. There, there's no ceremony. You don't stomp on a glass under a chuppah. That comes way, way later. The, the marriage begins when it's consummated. And then you pay the bride price. Or you pay the prostitute price. Because women are commodities here too. So what you have to avoid is a commodity that's not acting like her owner's property. I, I want to tell you, I think this is extremely degrading towards women. In everything I'm telling you, I'm 100% is positive the worldview behind Proverbs. I just, you may say, that sounds weird. It may, but I promise you it's correct. That's where I think this is a tough bit to read. So, you know, in the notes, and the guy says, well, you know, this really isn't written to women. No, no, it isn't. But I, and I want to warn you, I think some of this informs some residual misogyny in the world. I mean, again, if you are a conservative Muslim woman, infidelity is your fault, not a man's fault. Consider that that happens in U.S. law. We're changing this recently. If a man is caught with a prostitute, this is about 15 years ago, it's a misdemeanor. He pays like a $90 fine and is done. The prostitute goes to jail. Implication is it's the prostitute's fault more than the purchaser. Although... Supply and demand economics say if there were no demand, there'd be no supply. 
So cities that have been effective in eliminating or reducing prostitution have done things like publish the list of the John's names in the newspaper. Now when that happens, prostitution goes either way, way underground, and because of that goes way, way down, right? Um, when men are accountable for prostitution instead of women, it, it sort of goes away. That's the interesting thing. But please notice this worldview blames it on women. Well, they still blame it on yeah. women. In other words, when a woman who's been beaten by her husband shoots him and kills him because, he, you know, it's always her fault. I sat, I sat through the very first case in the United States of date rape. I mean, that, that word came, was sort of made up in 1997. She came to our chapel at school and talked about her story and how she whispered the word no, and that's all she could do. And at the end of that presentation, several people said she asked for it. Now, I have been here at St. Thomas and heard men say things like, she asked for it. I want to tell you that attitude is in Proverbs. And you don't... I just think it becomes important for us to disagree with certain bits like that. Okay? I, I just I want to name that because um, I think it's really destructive. I might sound like a radical feminist. It's because I am. But, but I also want you to know... And I have a daughter, quite frankly. I do. Right? And, uh, man, I sure don't want her to get treated like somebody's property because... I don't really think she's my property. Um, but if you put yourself in the place of those women back in that yeah. time, um, they didn't have any way, they, were, they had to be competitive to get a husband, yeah. so dressing up, making themselves look pretty, all this stuff that they made them a prostitute. They depended upon their skills to get them yeah. a husband because that was their only hope of survival, yes. was to have a man. And the prostitutes in the temple, that, I mean, they were there because they either their husbands had died or abandoned them or they had been, I mean, it wasn't a choice. Right. So I think that we, we look at these women and go, why didn't they stand up? But, I mean, these women were very, very um, competitive for the males. Yeah. So they may have acted on the no, and I think that was the message we talked about with Esther. We love all the women to be Vashti, but the truth is, Esther's the one who survives. So we live in between these two women now where we hope we can stand up for our scruples, but I sure want my daughter to survive too. You know, I mean, I just think, and that's the tough reality. I want my, I mean, my wife, who's a professional attorney, hates that she has to bring three sets of clothes to court depending on what the man judge wants her to wear. And that's wrong, but she doesn't want to get thrown out of court either, so she brings it. <laughs> you serious in today's world? Yes, oh, yeah. I'm very serious. Well, I, 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 I don't know much about the law. Do you think it's the same for her if there was a female judge? She would have, she would it might even be worse. It might even exactly. be worse. Yeah. Because the truth is, the number one people who hold women back are women. Yeah. We know that. And that's the same in churches. <laughs> In churches in which women cannot be clergy, I would tell you 90% of the work and money and attendance is by women. Mm-hmm. Yep. Hey, so, this I think is an interesting thing about Proverbs. It is a totally different worldview from ours and should be. 
So how we relate to the book today is really a question about wisdom and discernment or do we just buy it hook, line, and sinker as shrewdness? It has to do with time and place. We talk about emotional. But see, that's wisdom. That's, wi- that's what we're getting that's at. where you have to yeah. go. Where, where am I in my life, in my geography, uh, in what I know? I would tell you that I think a lot of this, and by the way, I want you to know, you can find every single one of these Proverbs in the Proverbs of Egypt. Solomon did not write these. Sorry. He might have read them and copied them, but they're not original. They're much older and from Egypt. And by the way, Solomon's the wisest guy ever, and he made the dumbest choices than any other king. He built a navy on the Sea of Galilee. Do you know where they can go? The Dead Sea. He knew God, and, and yet he's the biggest polygamist in the Bible. So it's possible he had this and never exercised it. Or it's really just possible he never had that. And he only had that. And he also turned out to be a terrible Yeah, all the people who bothered Daddy, David, Solomon killed them. That's shrewd. I don't know if it's wise. Um, sorry, I've been really critical now. And that's where I think this becomes really interesting to think about. There's a couple of words in Hinduism that you may know, and um, this is very related to what I read in Proverbs. Proverbs is a lot about this. What goes around comes around. You get what you pay for. Now, you know, in the Hindu tradition, you, you, your, your essence can live a long, long, long time. So what this sort of says is, you could have been good your whole life, this one, and something bad happens, you earned it in an earlier life. We don't have that. We think you get one shot in the Western tradition, so we don't even believe in karma. We don't. We use the word, but we don't. Right? So why bad things happen to good people? In Hinduism, yes, you earned it earlier. You, and you may not remember that, but you do. So the world's a just place, always. In our tradition, we've got a problem because bad things happen to good people. And why? Because they didn't earn it in this lifetime, which means they didn't earn it. This is why we struggle with that. There's another word, though, that's related to this that I think happens in Proverbs 2, and it's called dharma. Dharma is doing your duty according to your caste. So if you're born a king and you want to be a priest, too bad. (laughs) You better be the king. If you're born an outcast and untouchable and you're supposed to clean toilets with your hand, don't think you can be a physician. You're not doing your duty. You were born and you were born poor for a reason, so don't try to change it. Just be a poor person. Oppressive. Supposedly there's no caste system in India anymore. It's illegal. There is. And by the way, there's a caste system in our country as well. Uh, But there's also a caste system in Proverbs because in general, this kind of reasoning says you get what you pay for. Now, the thing is, Proverbs starts to recognize, hey, some people do work really hard and they're not necessarily rich. Well, better to be that than somebody 
who's got a gambling problem or doesn't do any work. Later as we read, there's exceptions to these, but, but be a workaholic anyway. I mean, that's sort of what they, they tell you. And my parents sort of said that too. Hey, you might get away with it. It's still not worth it. That's the kind of advice I got. Because eventually it'll catch up with you. You'll get punished after you die. I mean, that's kind of where the idea of hell came from as, a, as an eternal place of damnation is. Life might be not, not just, but it will be. You'll get what you deserve in hell even if you didn't get it in life. But they didn't believe in hell. <laughs> didn't. No, longer than that. Dante, Dante really codifies it. I mean, it's about a thousand years but old. They believe in Sheol. Sheol. That's Sheol. where everyone goes, good or bad. You all go to the oh. to a badin or Sheol or the pit. Whether you're good or bad. Good or bad. You all go there. Yep. Um, is there any form of purgatory anywhere else but in Catholicism? No, and actually, purgatory is pretty compassionate if you think about it. God will not punish you eternally for something you did that is only short-lived. You just have to pay for it, and then you can move on. Yes. It's extremely just. Mm -hmm. You have to pay for everything you do, but not forever, because the stuff we do doesn't last forever. The problem with purgatory is if you get punished and then also go to hell. That's where it starts to become weird, because that's just double, I mean, that's double punishment. <laughs> purgatory is really about penance. Yes. And penance requires two things in the Catholic tradition. Uh, you have to have contrition, you have to be sorry, and you have to make it right. <laughs> indulgences, by the way, since it's Reformation Day, indulgences didn't take care of the contrition, they just took care of the penance. So you didn't want to say 500 all fa our fathers and you had some money, you could pay for that, but you still had better be sorry or it didn't work. <laughs> But you know this is the whole problem with Martin Luther. He didn't know if he was sorry enough. Well, plenty of us do. I know plenty of people who, who aren't worried about that. But some of us type INTJ personalities. <laughs> Did we do enough for God? And Luther said, oh my God, no. And then finally he decided that you can't. So grace is just a gift. But only if you're elect. God doesn't give it to everybody. <laughs> That's our Reformation tradition. Um, <clears throat> there's something about heurist heuristic reasoning I want to leave you with, if it's okay. This is where Proverbs breaks down. By the way, I'm not criticizing the book. I just, I just want to have us this conversation about this. <laughs> it's not just because I'm a priest and I get to know some families intimately without having earned that. I mean, that's what happens. You know, I get to go with people when they're dying and I didn't earn that. I'm just wearing a collar. So I'm invited into that intimate space. Sometimes people come to me with really big problems and they give me a lot of trust because of my position. Hopefully I end up earning it and maintaining it, you know. But I have met more than one family struggling with particularly their children. And I don't think I'll surprise you when I say in general it tends to be adolescent children, though that's not always the case. Adolescent children who do not follow home rules or home examples. And there's this really big struggle with family like 
why aren't they doing the rules or the way of life that we model? Is it because they're wanton or rebellious or lazy? The answer in the book of Proverbs is yes. If they're not doing what you say to do, it's because they're rebellious, wicked, evil, and lazy. But I want you to know that I know parents of kids who have experienced trauma, like they were neglected, they were abused, not by their parents. And I would tell you, any foster kid who has become adopted will struggle with the following things. Cause and effect. Morality, as we understand it, self-control. When you're a foster kid or when you're neglected, that means you weren't changed when you were dirty and you weren't fed when you cried. So if you took food, it wasn't to steal it, it was to live. That happens in small kids. And you hopefully train them to trust the world as they get bigger. I'm reliable, I'll take care of you. However, it's such a primal wound, it's hard to know if kids can ever convert, ever. I'm, I've read books that say, actually, they cannot ever convert, they can just pretend. Fundamentally, they will mistrust the world their whole life. Different theories on that, but preponderances, all they can do is fake it. They can never have the conversion. Cause and effect. They cried, no one came. Or sometimes someone came, but not reliably. The world isn't linear, it's random. That's their experience. Same thing. Can you ever convert them that the world is linear? That A is so deeply correlated with B that it might as well be causation. Jury's out on that. People who suffer so much from shame and PTSD that instead of, I won't do it, they just can't. They can't do it. They don't know why. Their families don't know why. The book of Proverbs is an obstacle to those relationships. I would ask you, can you have a meaningful relationship with someone who reliably lies to you? According to Proverbs, you can't. Can you have a meaningful relationship with somebody who will steal from you? According to Proverbs, you can't. These children exist in the world. And this is, the, this is where we have to push on Proverbs. What do we do with these children who were formed not because they deserved it, but were formed because other people taught them proverbs of randomness, abuse, and unreliability. <clears throat> we can say, I'm sorry that happened to you, but at a certain point you have to take power over your own life. <laughs> and so you're going to jail now. now. Probably as a society, we have to behave Proverbially, proverbially, that is, with heuristic consequences. But is that how we have to behave as individuals?
I will tell you, these first 15 chapters do not answer those questions. You may say, Mike, that's such a small percentage. I would tell you that number is growing every day. Oddly enough, because... (laughs) I'm going to sound like a loony here. Nine-year-olds are playing video games where they shoot people's brains out. And then, if you do it, you get to dance on the screen, which is self-rewarding when you're nine. And when you take video games away from kids, they have a similar reaction to being off heroin. They physically go into withdrawal. Now, that's just here in the Western world that we give our kids drugs like violence. And I would tell you, interestingly enough, I've met more families with the characteristics I've just laid out in the last four years than I knew my first 30. I didn't have a single friend in high school that behaved the way I mentioned. The world's a random place. I lie because truth doesn't really matter, only survival does. There's no private property, there's just survival. I didn't have friends like that. Could be I was ignorant, but they exist. The Proverbs do not tell us what to do with those people. And because we live proverbially, this is a danger, we so rarely have empathy for those families. Let me tell you how this normally goes. Family says, I'm having a hard time with my teenager. Oh, me too. I remember when my son had a C in math. Relationship over. Empathy closed. It's hard, but it'll get better. How many times has your child stolen your car? If they're doing that, it must be something you as parents are doing wrong. That's a proverb. (laughs) You see, that's a proverb. Their behavior is something you've earned. So it comes off the rails, I want to tell you, really fast. And sometimes we don't even know we're saying things that are life-taking. Let's see if we find some answers next week. (laughs) 